In the eyes of a long-time environmental expert, how did the Green Movement's net-zero policies affect European countries' strategic position in the Ukraine war? What are the factors within the West stifling its energy competitiveness against aggressors? And how is the CCP weaponizing this movement? Joining us tonight to talk about this topic is Patricia Adams, economist and president of Energy Probe Research Foundation and one of the earliest advocates against the Chinese Communist Party's environmental geoengineering. Patricia, welcome. Thank you very much. So uh, currently we have on our, on our topic today, we have people in the West who are genuinely also interested in helping the environment. There could be some differences from what you yourself was calling for back then and the form of the movement that we are seeing now. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Well, it is a very different movement now. Um, at the time, it was people were very concerned about um, all aspects of the environment, whether it was a healthy river or forest or air quality or water quality. There, there were people were, were had very diverse interests. Um, and that was true, of course, in China as well as, as outside. I would say now the almost exclusive priority of environmental groups is climate change. And we were concerned about climate change in the 1980s. We did uh, research on it. We said this could be a problem. Um, and then as time went on, we did more and more research, uh, published books, published uh, hundreds of articles on the subject and determined that we do not think it is a problem, that CO2 is not causing environmental problems. Well, this runs counter to the position of most environmental groups now in the West. But the environmental movement became uh, almost monopolistic and, and sort of focused only on climate change. And uh, the irony, I think, is that they have advocated alternatives uh, to deal with CO2 emissions that themselves have enormous environmental problems. For example, large dams. They advocate building large dams. Well, we have a lot of evidence that big dams cause problems with uh, fisheries displacing people, uh, submerging agricultural land, causing uh, earthquakes, causing landslides. Uh, there, there are extraordinary problems with, with uh, hydro dams. They destroy fisheries. You know, they affect the livelihoods of, of, of millions and millions of people. Um, solar and wind both have environmental problems, the, the minerals that needs to be mined in order to produce them, the disposal costs. And then, of course, there's the issue of efficiency. Can you actually generate enough electricity uh, from so-called green energy to meet the needs of a modern economy? And, and I would say, no, you can't. So I guess I guess there are two separate issues here. And one is, um, you know, the factual basis of the people who are you know, advocating for this this movement, this green movement, um, and the other one is whether the um, the solutions that they're proposing is actually uh, is actually very effective. Um, I kind of want to zoom in onto the other one a little bit later, but first let's take a look at the current uh, Ukraine war. Merits and faults aside, how did the green policies of European countries like Germany impact their strategic position? Uh, in the war, in your opinion? Well, climate change became a big issue after the Rio Environment Conference in 1992 in Rio de Janeiro. Um, I think it became a big issue because it, it, I think thanks to the environmental movement that had made environment a, 
an issue of concern, politicians realized they had to do something. Well, climate change is a really good subject to say you, you care about because you don't have to do anything. And in fact, if you look at the issue uh, today, still about 84% of the world's energy comes from fossil fuels. So that's from coal, from oil, from gas. Uh, it hasn't changed over the last 20, 30 years. So even though politicians claim to care and, and uh, many companies say that they care, in fact, the, the situation has not uh, changed. The people are still consuming these high quality forms of, of energy because they are just that, they're high quality. So what happened in, in many countries, including the US, including Canada, Western Europe, Germany, is that the environmental movement um, became stronger the politicians wanted to appear green. And in some countries, they actually did start to shut down coal plants. That happened in Ontario here, where I live in Canada. It happened in Germany. Um, and you get governments who have said, oh, we, we're going to we have a net zero policy and we're going to get off fossil fuels. And in some cases, they actually do. They start to get off, off fossil fuels. Well, that puts them in a very vulnerable situation because what are the alternatives? The alternatives are not good. Uh, oil, um, gas and wind are very unreliable. Um, because they're unreliable, you have to have what's called thermal backup. You have to have a, an electricity supply backing up when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. Well, that almost invariably comes from gas, uh, from gas-fired uh, generators. So what happened in Western Europe uh, and to, to an extent in Canada and also in the United States, with the exception of the Trump era when he was president, um, was countries started cutting back on their fossil fuel consumption and put themselves in a very vulnerable position uh, where they started to depend, in, in Europe, they started to depend more and more on Russia. And so that gives Russia today a, a lot of leverage because if you start placing sanctions on Russian energy, Western Europe's in trouble because they don't have alternatives. Now, the U.S. says they're going to ramp up LNG, Canada, our prime minister said that he's going to help, going to try to get some of our fossil fuels to, to Europe. Well, that's not going to be easy. Uh, President Biden has reduced fossil fuel uh, output by about 10% in that country. President Trump did the reverse. Uh, he, he expanded the uh, output of fossil fuels and especially of fracking, which is uh, mostly getting gas, but also oil. And that made the United States a net energy exporter which had not been the situation for about 30 years. So he put the U.S. in a position where it could export uh, fossil fuels to other countries. And of course, it also had security itself. And, you know, in geopolitics, uh, energy security is national security. And no one knows that better than the Chinese Communist Party. They are laser focused on uh, either developing, trying to develop their own oil and gas resources, not having much luck doing it. They've got lots of coal, but not, not very much oil and gas. Um, and so they know they've got to import it from other countries. And that makes them very nervous because that, that means they have to depend on other countries' goodwill to export it to them, and then also to ship it to them through about three different choke points, um, which are controlled by other countries. So it's, it's um, it, it, oil and gas are crucial to a country's national security. I think it was in the Second World War that a politician said, you need three things to win a war. You need oil, oil, and oil. So they are, they are, they are not only important 
uh, fuels for a modern economy. But if you're uh, an expansionist government like the Chinese Communist Party, then you absolutely need them as well. In this context, do you see sort of an active effort for why well, the intention, the two, part, two part of the question, do you see um, a motivation for China to basically help push uh, the global, you know, the climate agenda? And, and second, to, you know, to essentially join the you know, global or, or appear to join the, the global agenda. Do you see that they're they're very motivated to do so because you know they, they in the end, from, from what you said, they're going to uh, you know benefit a lot from this, isn't it? Yes, I think they benefit in several ways. One is that the the uh, the China now monopolizes uh, the manufacture of wind turbine industrial wind turbine systems as well as solar panels. So they benefit in that sense that they would be able to export those two countries that are making those investments. And then they doubly uh, benefit because those investments tend to weaken the countries that buy them because they're very poor sources of energy. So it weakens those countries um, in that it reduces their, their energy security, uh, but it also weakens their economies as well. And that, that you know, for the Chinese government that's got an expansionist policy, um, wants, wants to achieve world domination by 2049, the 100-year um, so the centenary of the Communist Party taking over, this fits in beautifully with, with their agenda. They, they appear to be green, um, but at the same time, they're weakening their, their adversaries. In their um, approach to geopolitics, they, they, don't, they would prefer to avoid war. Um, so if there are other ways to defeat the enemy, um, and as General Sun Tzu said, uh, often the enemy will hand you the weapon that, that you can use against them. And climate change is that weapon. We're, we have handed it uh, to the Chinese Communist Party, and they're using it to weaken us. So it, uh, it fits in very well with their agenda. Do you think the United States government is, or the, uh, the politicians in the West are, are not aware of this? Or? Oh, I, I think they're aware of it. And... In the case of China, the, the climate change issue would be dead in the water if the Chinese government said we're not participating because China is the major producer of CO2. And, and if China doesn't say it's going to participate in CO2 reduction with net zero and so on, then, then the, nobody in the environmental movement has jobs anymore. Um, the, the issue becomes dead. Um, so... So to the extent that the politicians in the West need to satisfy that beast, um, they, will, they will turn a blind eye to the fact that, that the Chinese government says they're going to do something about climate change and then do nothing about it so that they can at home continue to um, maintain the fiction that they're going to do something about it as well. This is all about getting reelected for them. And if they feel that public opinion cares about it, then they will... Uh, they will want to appear to care about it as well. Do they realize it? They have to realize it. I mean, it's, it, it is so obvious. The Chinese government promises it's going to reduce CO2 and then it, it, it announces plans to open, you know, X number of new coal plants. And, and of course they're going to do that because they've got to keep their economy running. And if they don't, if the Chinese Communist Party doesn't uh, keep the economy running, then they are in trouble. They may, they may have trouble maintaining power. So this is an existential uh, issue for them 
to to keep the um, keep fossil fuel availability in the country and in, increase supplies as well. So I think they 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 have to realize it. So there's a there's a lot of um, a, a kind of Potemkin village here where everybody's play acting and pretending that they're doing something where where they're really not. They are of course investing to some countries, for example, in Canada and in Western Europe and in England, um, investing in green energy. It's very expensive. It's led to the, at least the doubling of electricity prices in Ontario. It's the, you know, these plans for net zero expansion in the UK are estimated to cost three trillion pounds. Um, in the United States, you're anywhere between nine and $12 trillion. I mean, these are very, very silly, expensive plans um, that would, would really handicap our economies if they were to proceed. So I think they're just saying it in order to maintain the fiction that they are green. Um, and it's, it's not realistic at all. Now, of course, the Chinese government loves this because it weakens our economies. Uh, you know, our, the Ontario economy has been weakened because our electricity prices are so high. Um, our prime minister has introduced legislation that have led to the cancellation of uh, lots of oil facilities and pipelines. That weakens our economy. We, we've lost billions and billions of dollars because of that. So that that st strengthens the Chinese Communist Party vis-a-vis -vis us. Um, and that would be true for the United States as well. So they're, they're delighted if we adopt these, these ruinous green policies. Well, they say they're going to, but they don't. Uh, so uh, zooming into the Chinese Communist Party even a little bit more, um, is there more to be said about their participation uh, in this green climate movement and the threat uh, that will pose to the West? Yes, there's a lot of um, interference, I would, I would call it, uh, in, in each other's energy policy. And, and there are many examples of that. So the, the Chinese Communist Party um, favors certain environmental organizations in Europe and the United States who, who will congratulate the Chinese government for its plans to reduce CO2. Um, this gives the Chinese Communist Party a lot of legitimacy um, and and I think they're being useful idiots to to use the uh, Lenin's term. Um, they they're they're not being honest. Um, the Chinese the Chinese Communist Party has no intention of reducing CO two levels and reducing fossil fuel levels, and yet they will do everything um, they can because they they have to keep China engaged in this debate. China needs them, and they need China. They need the Communist Party to, to pretend to be um, um, reducing CO2. They need each other. Uh, in the case of Russia, there are allegations in the United States that, that Russians are helping to finance U.S. environmental groups to reduce fracking and um, the expansion of oil and gas. Um, that's disputed. The environmental groups deny it. Um, but it does merit... An investigation. It is worth it. And in Canada, uh, U.S. environmental organizations and foundations have financed an enormous campaign against our oil sands um, facilities in Alberta and have been very successful in shutting them down, many of them, uh, in shutting down pipelines. 
well, you know, this has affected the, the Canadian economy. It's affected communities, it's affected employment, it's affected, affected um, you know, oil supplies and so on. And uh, it, we had an investigation by the Alberta government into uh, U.S. involvement uh, and financing with uh, huge sums of money uh, that went into Canadian environmental organizations to, to stop um, the expansion of uh, oil sands in, in this country. So it happens. It definitely happens. And it is well worth uh, investigating. Um, and I think environmental organizations have to be very, very careful about this, um, about who they're getting money from and, and who they're aligning themselves with. They, you know, they, the environmental organizations' credibility comes from their, their preparedness to speak truth um, and to, to, to explain the situation as they see it. Um, and not to be swept swept away by um, uh, by politics and by money, uh, because there's a lot of money in the climate change industry. And from from what you said, you know, China tried to project that that power overseas as well. China definitely uh, wants to pro- wants the the approach of the Chinese government is very interesting to towards international institutions and the climate change. Uh, the IPCC is is one of those many institutions um, where they will cooperate, and then often they will warp it to to suit their own purposes. So, for example, in the Human Rights Council, of which China is a member, it's now redefined human rights um, to to suit its own purposes, so to say that you know it's a human right to development. So they they've sort of taken away the 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 uh, original meaning of human rights, which is that you, you have invested in you as an individual the right uh, to life and, and so on, um, and to be free from incarceration and whatnot. So they've, 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 they've sort of rewritten the rules within the, the human rights institutions, and um, they're, they're doing the same thing in, in climate change, in the climate change institutions as well. Um, and 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 hoping and succeeding in getting other countries to handicap their own economies uh, by saying they're going to go green and net zero and and so on, uh, while the Chinese uh, economy does not, and they they continue to invest in fossil fuels and to power their economy as they should. I don't disagree with them. I think they should do that. I think we are the fools in in that case, um, and they are succeeding. In, in getting us to, to harm ourselves. Um, I want to zoom into your, uh, the very interesting proposition uh, that you, you talked about, which is the fact that there is uh, this interference um, that merits investigation. Uh, can you, on the top of your head, can you think of any evidence that points towards the fact that, yeah, this is, uh, this is an intentional interference uh, targeting certain um, sectors of society uh, in the West? That's um, you know, basically that whether it comes from environmental groups in the United States and whether there are any associations uh, with powers outside of the United States. Well, in Canada, it's it's out there in the open. Um, I think it was over a billion dollars over, I think, about 15 or 16 years that came from U.S. foundations um, to environmental organizations in Canada to stop uh, the, the oil sands. It, it's as, 
it's as clear as day. There, there were actually there was some independent research that was done over the years and published, and then that led to a government investigation uh, into the nature of the of the funding, where it was coming from, who it was going to, um, and what the consequences were. And the consequences were that it cost it cost a lot of jobs and and it, a lot of harm to the Canadian economy. And so that may well lead to a change in legislation that I think has been considered in the United States, that if you're a, a, an environmental organization that's operating in Canada, for example, or in, in the United States, and you're getting funding from either the Chinese Communist Party or from the Russians, um, and you're, you're using that money to harm a, a sector in, in the country in question, say the, the US or Canada, to the advantage of, of the country that's making that donation, that you should be called a foreign agent. And if you're a foreign agent, then you are subject to different levels of disclosure and scrutiny. You know, our economies and our societies in Canada and in the U.S. have thrived on openness. And that, that, are, that is the result of having a, a, a legitimate judicial system, one that people trust, um, having politicians who could be tested, who can be thrown out of office, and being able to have debates with one another and having a free press and a press that is not is not compromised. And our many of our medias have um, the mainstream media have become uh, really advocates for different parties. They're not doing their job, um, which is to which is to be a voice for debate and discussion and different opinions. That's where you thrash things out. That's where you expose lies. That's where you arrive at the truth. You, you have a much better idea of the costs and benefits of different courses of action if you have an open debate. And if you have um, a country like, like the Chinese Communist Party or a party like the Chinese Communist Party or, or the Russians who are warping that debate um, behind the scenes by financing um, um, positions that don't appear to be their positions, but appear to be domestic positions, and that's certainly what happened in Canada as well, then, then, then you, you, you no longer have a level playing field. You, you don't have an open debate. Um, and and it's, you, you have all this, this sort of behind-the-scenes influencing. And, and that, that's not right. It doesn't lead to good decisions. Uh, and it doesn't lead to accountable decisions. You know, in Canada, we, we have a lot of knowledge. We have a lot of experience. We have good institutions. Um, and we, we can figure these things out. You know, we, we didn't need all the, these American uh, foundations to, to fund um, the debate in Canada. There was a lively debate here before. And, and, um, and you know, I think it, it, if you want an accountable governance system, then you, you, you sort of have to stay out. <laughs> so, and I think in the case of Russia and, and the Chinese Communist Party, um, if, if there are American organizations that are in fact um, uh, being funded to make a case that hurts the United States in favor of, of the U.S. or of Russia, that, that it does it should it does merit being exposed and investigated. And have you seen uh, any uh, basically concrete examples of this uh, this funding uh, from from foreign powers? Well, in the case of China, it's in my uh, paper for the Global Warming Policy Foundation um, on uh, 
the influence of the of the Chinese Communist Party through, for example, um, Energy Foundation, the China Energy Foundation, which is a, a subset of the Energy Foundation. It's run by a fellow who used to be um, worked for the he was a Communist Party member, worked for the Chinese government um, in climate in the climate change policies. He's now the head of it. So he's 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 allocating millions of dollars to American organizations to work on climate change. Um, and as far as I can see, he, he's also answering to the Chinese Communist Party. So um, and that's in in my paper that I did for the the Global Warming Policy Foundation. So, um, you know, that that's that's not a secret. The interesting thing about that, though, is that the money's not coming from the Chinese government. It's coming from American foundations. But it appears that the decisions are certainly being made um, uh, by somebody who is, is, has been part of the machinery of the Chinese Communist Party and the, and the climate change um, industry. I think that there are allegations now about Russian funding going to American, some American NGOs. I don't think that there's a money trail yet that has been proven. Um, but if there is one there, it does merit being exposed and investigated. Um, just make make this information available so that when when people listen to an environmental organization, um, they know where the money's coming from. You know, I've been doing this for more than 30 years now, and and I can say it's always important to people to know where the money comes from. Um, you know, that that's important to your credibility. I guess one of the uh, you know playing a little bit of devil's advocate, um, maybe literally, but uh, one of the argument. On the other side is basically right in terms of risk analysis there there are the there are the probability and severity right so uh, there is this you know giant enormous human existential crisis level event which is you know climate change and the, what, what they call a climate crisis um, obviously you know they uh, according to 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 the to the advocates of the green movement it's very severe and even if there's a you know a, a reasonable probability that that would be happening, then you know that that grants the merit for uh, certain measures to be taken. And even you know they people would propose that other people's freedom be taken. Uh, how would you address this position? Um, I would say this that that if you if you take a hydro dam for example on a river. It's, we, we have, oh, I would say 100 years of experience with hydro dams. There are a lot of them around the world. Um, of course, China is the country with most hydro dams. Um, and we have a lot of documentation. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's been gathered, lots of academics work on it. Lots of citizens groups on the ground uh, have gathered that information. So the evidence is, is actually excellent. Um, so it's very easy to predict now what will happen you can't predict precisely because every river is different but but you have a pretty good idea of what will happen when you when you dam a river um in in the case of climate change what our organization did um and it was actually the result of a, a discussion that we had with a chinese colleague actually who who came uh, visited us for a, a couple of weeks and we had um, a discussion about the scientific evidence for climate change. And that then led to a research project uh, where one of our staff members who wrote for one of the national newspapers began to write a series of articles looking at all the different scientists whose research in one way or another uh, undermined the arguments 
for climate change. So that he, he for example, covered um, a scientist from Japan who was a specialist in ice core samples or in tree ring samples. Um, a, a Russian who is a, an expert in solar activity. So he, he, in the end, he interviewed about 200 different scientists, all with different expertise, wrote an article about each one of them. And in every single case, their evidence, even though they didn't have positions on climate change per se, the research that they did undermined the arguments of the, the, what I would call the climate change advocates, the people who said that it was happening. So when we presented that information to them, they refused to discuss it. Um, we had many situations where our staff were invited to give lectures and, and participate in debates. And if there was somebody from uh, an environmental movement also in that debate, and they heard that one of our staff members was going to come, they would refuse to show up. Um, some of these debates were canceled. So, so at the same time, there became an intolerance in the media, in academia for debate. There's a lot of evidence out there. The other thing to keep in mind um, is that with, with climate change, it is based on models. You, you yourself said it. If there's a chance, you know, the environmentalists say for sure that it's happening. The, the for sure is based on models. Every aspect of climate change is modeled. The, the model that it's going to happen into the future, the, they had to model data going backwards about the way that CO2 was accumulated in trees and therefore you have to interpret the, the tree rings in this way and you have to interpret um, uh, the ice core samples and so on. All of the data was modeled and the, and the climate change uh, models were modeled as well. So it's very, very speculative. It's not speculative to look at the environmental consequences of building a hydro dam, or for example, a nuclear power station, or for that matter, a, a windmill or solar panels. You know what, what the materials are that go into it. You know what their life expectancy is. You can, you can monitor how much energy they're actually producing, how, whether they, how long they last, uh, what the disposal costs are and so on. There, there's very little precise information about climate change. It is, it is basically a fiction, is what it is. Whereas when you look at, at other things, including oil and gas, when you look at, um, for example, something very interesting that happened in Europe, the, the EU decided that they wanted to reduce CO2. This is maybe 10 years ago. They wanted to reduce CO2. So they made a decision with the car companies that the car companies would start producing cars to run on diesel fuel. Diesel fuel, um, you, you get you you get less CO two per mile traveled. The problem is with a with a um, a diesel fuel engine is that they don't have the technology to reduce nitrous oxide. So what happened in in cities that had had fairly clean air for many many years, Paris and London, suddenly had these very dangerous levels of of nitrous oxide. Why? Because the the politicians had made a decision to switch the car fleet from a petroleum, uh, from oil to diesel. And the consequence of that was that they started having very high levels of, of nitrous oxide. And that was dangerous. That is dangerous to breathe. So you, you, that's real. You can measure that, you can see that. But when you take the climate change issue and you start to, you dig down, you drill down into the arguments, you find that it's all based on models 
and that the proponents of it will not debate you. That's, that adds up to something very suspicious. And so I guess one, one problem that's associated with this um, is that, as you, as you mentioned a little bit before, within, even within academia, um, there is this very united, um, you know, a very coherent narrative that kind of, you know, it, it plays into this. And, and dissenting um, evidence and, 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 you know, usually hypotheses are usually dismissed. Uh, why do you think this is the case? Well, we've got the cancel culture. And in fact, that term is what? A couple of years old. We, we really, now everybody knows what it means. We, we first experienced it, I would say, maybe 15 years ago. Um, when, when people started saying about our organization that was skeptical about climate change, they, they started saying, you know, this is a bad organization and you shouldn't support them. Um, so what, what has happened, I think, the, the problem is that the government controls so much of the energy sector that you cannot do anything without um, sort of paying homage to the, to the climate change um, orthodoxy. If you criticize it, if you're an academic, you won't get funding for your research. If you're an NGO, you won't get funding from foundations or from the government which is why it's important for NGOs not to rely on government or corporations or foundations. Um, so it, I think in the, at the end of the day, it's the money and it's the, it's the access to, to funds that controls, uh, keep people in line and, and stops them from standing up and saying, you know what, I don't think we have climate change. I don't think it, it's not man-made. I mean, there's always climate changing. But um, if it, it, CO two is not a problem, because the moment you say that you you you're going to be you're going to be punished. You may be removed from social media. You may be um, you know canceled on social media. So it, it it becomes very hard to speak the truth. Now that applies to a lot of different subjects, not just climate change. Um, uh, you know, I think we've become in our society very uncivil. People do not tolerate differences of opinion or they can't stand to be challenged anymore. Um, and so their, their response is to, is, to, is to shoot the messenger or, or to shoot, as we say, to shoot the, the person who's challenging rather than to engage that person and say, you know, explain to me why and I'll, I'll tell you why I think you're wrong and, and you go back and forth. There, there used to be a lot more of that, um, I would say 20, 30 years ago, but uh, the, I would say the last five to 10 years has become very discouraging uh, and it's not, not healthy. It's not healthy at all. Um, that, that we're not allowed to debate these, these issues because it means that our governments make very bad investments and uh, that costs us all money. Fascinating. Well, with that said, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Patricia Adams. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.